0: Welcome to the first lecture of 2105, Introduction to Modern East Asian History. So in this first lecture, I'm going to introduce in very broad outlines the history of late Cholson, Korea. Uh, Specifically, I'll be focusing on the 16th and 17th centuries. This will be the same with the first lectures on China and Japan. And similarly, the purpose of this talk will be to set the stage for the 19th century, which is really the beginning of what we're going to spend the most time on. Uh, The reason for that is that the 19th century is when the East Asian world order, known as the Sinosphere, uh, in other words, the sphere of Chinese cultural and political influence, was overturned by confrontations with the so-called West, the North Atlantic Imperial powers. This disruption of the East Asian Sino-centric, in other words, centered on China, world order, triggered major changes in the region and launched all three of the nations of East Asia, which were interested in China, Japan, Korea, on separate divergent attempts to maintain their autonomy and also a sort of mad scramble within each country to consolidate or grab power, to entrench the nation in tradition or leap into modernity on a sort of Western-led global imperial model. So, The varied fates of China, Japan, and Korea are best understood uh, against the backdrop and within the context of the histories and societies that predated the mid-19th century and the clashes with particularly the Anglo-American powers uh, and other Western rivals. In short, you really can't start a history of East Asia with the opium wars, uh, and you can't start them with the black ships. You can't start them with the opium wars in china nor with the black ships of commodore perry arriving in japan now both of those things happen in the middle of the 19th century and they do make a nice sort of turning point uh, in terms of understanding the history Uh, and we will sort of pick up in earnest the history of east asia around that time but we do need to have a background which i will try to provide in these first several lectures so for chosen korea we're going to start in the waning decades of the 16th century, the end of the 1500s. As I've said, the timeline is more or less similar for China and Japan. And that's because conveniently, the turn of the 17th century was a momentous time in East Asia. Within roughly a half century, beginning in the 1590s, Japan's two failed invasions destabilized Korea. Uh, and this had powerful long-term repercussions. Japan itself was transformed by the end of the so-called Warring States period of warlordism, and uh, and it was at least nominally united under what would become the Tokugawa regime after 1600. Uh, and then China was conquered by the Manchus, who established the Qing dynasty. In other words, in the decades from 1590 to about 1650 or so, those six decades the socio-political order in East Asia underwent enormous substantive changes that launched the major political and cultural regimes that were still in place two centuries later when the West came calling. So before we jump into talking about uh, Cholson Korea, one last thing, especially in these early lectures, uh, which are more about laying the groundwork to better understand the modern histories of East Asia, I'm going to spend a lot less time on details, uh, on names, dates, etc., and a lot more time on the big picture, the broad historical sweep. Even as we move into the modern period, though, I want you to keep your focus on those big narratives, macro-level trends, and on the why more than the what. So facts are, of course, important. But in the end, they're less important than a broad understanding of the patterns of history, the ebb and the flow. And in some cases, facts can even get in the way of seeing that big picture and really understanding it. In contrast, if you have the big picture and you can see the patterns that repeat or don't uh, or contrast, whatever, um, it's not that hard to plug in the names and dates. and. Ultimately, uh, the names and dates you can look up. Uh, those are factual information that you can find, in most cases, even on Wikipedia. Um, but putting that all together uh, to make a coherent, cohesive, meaningful story is the thing that we're going to focus on. So with that in mind, some of the big themes and issues that we will return to again and again are both domestic and international politics, uh, changes in the regional and sort of national economies. Uh, The word national is not always quite right, but we'll talk more about that, too. Uh, We will talk about culture, and specifically within uh, culture, uh, or I guess overlapping with culture is a better way to say it, uh, we'll return to the issue of gender. So with that in mind, let's talk about late Joseon Korea. The Joseon dynasty was exceptionally long lived, but that doesn't mean that it was uniformly peaceful, prosperous, or that there was always progress being made. Um, Korean history during the period uh, 1392 to 1910, which is the period of the Joseon dynasty, was characterized by a lot of ups and downs, some of which were quite enormous. Uh, It's actually miraculous in that sense that a single dynasty managed to remain in power throughout these centuries. On paper, at least, Joseon Korea was a strictly hierarchical society. And there's significant reason to believe that that hierarchy uh, did play out in the lives of many of the people uh, and was a very salient part of the way that they experienced the world. This is especially true after the possibility of social mobility was increasingly cut off, as her- uh, hereditary elites who wanted to consolidate and keep power for themselves and for their children and grandchildren uh, shored up power. These elites were known as yangban. And they eventually enjoyed a near monopoly on the civil and military bureaucracies on Joseon Korea's educational institutions and land ownership. And this is true even though they accounted for less than 10% of the population. They carved out privileges for themselves. They were exempted from land taxes, tribute, corvée, which is a word that means forced labor, uh, military conscription, etc and their privilege was enforced by the Civil Service Examination System, which was modeled on Chinese precedent. The examination system was virtually the only road to attaining a high-level official position throughout the Joseon period. But no fear, those Yangban who failed to become high-ranking officials could fall back on positions as teachers or landlords. They were, in the words of one Korean historian, a parasitic, privileged class. By 1600, the Yangban were firmly established as a major political force. They had become, for all intents and purposes, an aristocracy. The rise of the Yangban was linked to the Confucianization of Korean society. And the Yangban were one part of that, but they were also, as I've suggested, uh, the chief beneficiaries in many ways. Rigorous, long-term Confucian education was an absolute must for the examinations And that put them out of reach for most members of society. Again, on paper, the exams were open to anyone. But you have this exhausting, time consuming task of mastering the Chinese classics, history, belles lettres, and this is beyond the practical means of anybody but these hereditary elites, the Yangban. Everyone else is just trying to survive. So, class interest, Yangban class interest, uh, helps to explain why Hangul, the script invented in 1446 by King Sejong, was by and large rejected by the yangban After all, it was the difficulty of exams that it secured their place in society. And through the private Yangban run academies that secured income for many of them, uh, th- that was the other thing that they used to secure their place in society, right? So for them, Hangul, an easy-to-learn, easy-to-read phonetic script was a threat to their own privilege. And that's primarily for this reason that uh, Sejong's handy script was never more than an aid, a sort of ancillary script during the Chosun period. So that's one example of how the Yangban uh, were a regressive force that really, uh, in the in the interest of maintaining their own privilege in society, uh, often worked against the interests of society at large and the people in it. The Confucianization of Choson in the 15th and 16th centuries was remarkable. One recent history has gone uh, as far as to claim that, quote, within the first two centuries of its reign, Choson became more sinicized than China itself. In other words, more Chinese than China. Korea was essentially a tributary of China, which treated its metaphorical younger brother, Korea, with a sort of benign neglect born of noblesse oblige. And this allowed the Choson dynasty significant internal political autonomy, though that was predicated on cultural affinities and a relationship that the Koreans referred to as, and I'm going to get the pronunciation wrong, I apologize, but sadai, serving the great Within this context, uh, Chosun Confucians recognized Ming China as a mature example of a Confucian society, but they did not see Confucianism and Confucian civilization as uniquely Chinese. Instead, they aspired to create a more perfect Confucian society, one adhering more closely to Confucian orthodoxy than even their model, Ming China. The influence of Buddhism was stamped out, And Neo-Confucianism, a sort of new interpretation of Confucianism, became official state philosophy. For our purposes, the following brief description of Confucianism is enough to understand uh, what Neo-Confucianism meant in the Choson dynasty. So I'm just going to quote from a a history of Korea that explains Confucianism. It's a bit of a long quote, uh, and I'll tell you when it's done. Confucianism is based on an ideal model of relations between family members that called for special bonds between sovereign and subject, father and son, and husband and wife, as well as five moral disciplines. Confucianism generalized the family model and relationships of subjects to the state and to an international system. In political terms, these principles meant that a village followed the leadership of venerated elders and citizens revered a king who was thought of as the father of the state. Generalized to international relations, the Chinese emperor was the big brother of the Chosun king. A conservative philosophy, Confucianism stressed tradition, strict social hierarchies, obedience to superiors, and identification of the father with the monarch. It adopted the proper right as one of its major virtues, and therefore paid careful attention to the performance of ritual. In the international context, it envisioned a China-centered world order. And that's the end of the quote. So what's important there, again, is that there are very sort of uh, strict, clearly laid out uh, proper relations and proper behaviors, uh, interpersonal behaviors, uh, and that ritual uh, is also extremely important. Um, And with that, of course, tradition that grows out of that. So Chosun Neo-Confucianism provided some checks and balances between the ruler, the king, and the Yangban scholar officials who dominated the bureaucracy. The Confucian emphasis on filial piety, uh, in other words, on honoring one's parents, and loyalty to the ruler. These aspects were useful to the Chosun kings in gaining conformity, uh, obedience to their authority. On the other hand, as in China, Confucian scholars viewed themselves as responsible for guiding the ruler toward moral perfection, and so they insisted that the ruler should listen to their counsel, even if this tended to hamstring the king's authority and protect the Yangban class interests. In other words, Confucian precepts mandated that the king, in theory an autocrat, must heed the advice of his scholar officials, and this allowed the Yangban to check his power a little bit uh, and increase their own. So at times, the Yangban served as a counterbalance to royal power. But often, they, the Yangban themselves were divided by factional infighting. And factional infighting is a theme that is going to come back over and over again when we talk about Korea. It is a plague in Korean history. In any case, beyond the royals and the Yangban, Sholson society is often loosely grouped into the following class or occupational groups, defined as befits a Confucian patriarchy by the father's position. So there were hereditary technical specialists, such as scribes, medical officers, translators, interpreters, technicians in science-related fields, government artists, local functionaries, etc., called the chungin. Then there were the sangming, the commoners. These were the largest group, which which uh, included farmers, craftsmen, uh, merchants, etc. And finally, uh, there were the chongbing. 95% or so of this last group were slaves. And the group overall accounted for about 30% of the total population in early Choson. though that number does fall significantly in other years. Uh, so I think many people are unaware of this unless you have some uh, background in East Asian history, but uh, Joseon Korea is by and large uh, a slave state. Uh, if you have 30% of the population who fall into a group of whom 95% are slaves, you can see that probably somewhere over one in four people uh, in early Joseon began uh, as slaves. And as, as I said, uh, that number does decrease significantly over time. So let's talk about the 16th century. Uh, and specifically, we're going to talk about the end of the 16th century, when there is a significant decline in the fortunes of Joseon Korea. So corruption, disparity, factionalism, I've already talked about this idea of infighting. All of these were on the rise, and institutions of government in decline in 16th century Joseon. And this left the country unready to withstand the Japanese invasion in the 1590s by the Japanese warlord and hegemon Toyotomi Hideyoshi, uh, which is something we'll come back to and discuss later. Over the course of the 15th and 16th centuries, landlords and yangban expanded their holdings of both land and slaves, increasing the stratification of society between a wealthy privileged elite and a struggling majority. While remarkable growth occurred in agricultural production as a result of territorial expansion in the north, the aggrandizement of agricultural land mainly resulting from the reclamation of coastal areas, population growth, the government's policy to encourage farming, Confucian Literati's study of agricultural management, and improvements in fertilizers and other technological or scientific advancements, including in fields such as astronomy, which was closely linked, of course, to agriculture, and also medicine. Uh, And while a simultaneous expansion of craft and trade activities meant that at least some areas of many of the peninsula's cities were bustling with commerce and activity. Overall, the quality of life for everyone except for the the privileged, uh, the young bond, etc., ranged from bad to worse. Rich landlords expanded their holdings by means that were both legal and illegal if necessary, at the expense of smallholding commoner peasants. Yangban landlords lent money to smallholders and then foreclosed when they could not repay, seizing the loaned money and all of the assets that were used as collateral. So indebted poor peasants often commended their land to Yangban and became their slaves to escape the tax collector and the military's uh, conscription service. On the other hand, Yangban regularly bribed government clerks to register them falsely as students, qualified them for exemptions from military duty and taxes. So on the one hand, the poor become slaves to avoid uh, military service and taxes, and the Yangban become students. Uh, You can see who gets the better end of that deal. The state entirely fails to remedy this situation, and it's equally either unwilling or unable to alleviate the heavy burden of taxation, corvée, military service, etc., that fell on the shoulders of the peasantry. If anything, things got worse for farmers and other commoners as Yangban expanded their landholdings, and the government changed its loan programs for the worse. In the previous century, needy peasants had borrowed uh, grain interest-free, but in the 16th century, this system was changed. Interest of 10% was more common. Uh, then, excuse me, ten percent or more was common. Such failings allowed resentment to simmer in the 16th century. Uh, that's a it's a pretty steep interest rate on a loan, especially if you are a peasant. Uh, and the desire for some sort of revolutionary change began to build in some quarters. In their own way, though, things were hardly better in the upper echelons of government in the early 16th century. Uh, Factional conflicts within the Yangban and between various Yangban and the king led to upheaval and at least four major purges of the Neo-Confucian literati. One in 1498, one in 1504, one in 1519, and then another one in 1545. These power struggles did nothing to strengthen Korea as a state and as a society. Instead, they opened the way for more factionalism in the late 16th century, this time between the so-called Westerners and Easterners. And that doesn't have the sort of global history meaning. It's a local uh, nomenclature. And it is an odd nomenclature. It comes from a 1575 conflict within the bureaucracy. One side was led by a bureaucrat who lived in Western Seoul. The other by a man in, you guessed it, Eastern Seoul. Now, initially at least, established literati mainly flocked to the Westerner faction. Up-and-comers tended to side with the Easterners. As one historian remarked, factional strife was a life-and-death struggle between political cliques. It was not, however, a productive struggle. In 1598, just a few years before Hideyoshi invaded Korea and occupied Seoul, rebellion and accusations of treason remained a major distraction from the real work of governing the country. So when a rebellion broke out, King Songjo uh, accepted the unreasonable charge of the Westerners that the rebellion was an Easterner plot, and he executed over 70 Easterner officials. So what's going on here is that the elites of Korea are fighting with each other, and what they're paying attention to is past and present wrongs that everyone else has committed that's not conducive to good government. And these domestic entanglements and distractions seem to have been partly responsible for the state's complete unpreparedness for the Japanese invasion. And this is despite the warning that they were given uh, by a delegation that had been sent to Japan in 1591 to assess Hideyoshi's intentions. So this brings us to the invasion. The Chosun dynasty's relationship with Japan was, uh, in contrast to that of Sadai with China, uh, serving the great, envisioned as one of, uh, and I won't even attempt the Korean here, I apologize, but one of, quote, neighborly relations. In other words, one uh, a relationship between equals. And as it goes with neighbors and equals, it was not always an amicable relationship. So, For example, in 1426, three ports were open to Japanese trade, Merchants traded rice, beans, cloth, porcelain, books, and more. Uh, and from Japan, in return, they got dyes, medicines, spices, and mineral resources, including copper, sulfur, and tin. A century later, though, feeling threatened by the growing number of Japanese in the port cities and their demands for more trade, Choson tightened its regulations. Now, this is a little bit um, rich, <laughs> ironic, uh, given that Japan is the, is also known for uh, its so-called closed country policy, which comes a little bit later, uh, and which, by the way, uh, you just a preview here, uh, you're going to find out is not as closed as most people think. But in any case, uh, in, in the uh, 15th century, uh, it is the Japanese presence in Korean port cities that is problematic. And it sparks a rebellion in these port cities, uh, which is put down by the Korean government. And after this, Tolson effectively uh, cuts Korean-Japanese trade in half and adopts a much more isolationist stance vis-a-vis its neighbor. As such crackdowns do, this encouraged the development of illegal trade networks and pirating. To this day, many scholars, and certainly many non-scholarly folks, incorrectly refer to these pirates as woko in Chinese, uh, uh, I think it's Wegu in Korean and Wako in Japanese. All of those terms mean the same thing Japanese pirates. But in fact, the Wako were predominantly Chinese, not Japanese. Uh, that fact has hardly been allowed to interfere with feel good nationalism, uh, especially anti Japanese nationalism and revisionism. A far better reason for antipathy to the Japanese came, as I've previewed a couple times, in 1592. And this is when Toyotomi Hideyoshi requested free passage through Korea so that he could attack Ming China. In other words, he wasn't really there to invade Korea. Uh, But when King Sonjo refused, Hideyoshi sent his army to invade Korea uh, to essentially cut a path through the peninsula to China, which was his real goal. Hideyoshi sent his army uh, and it very quickly overwhelmed the Korean defenders. For those of you who don't know, Hideyoshi uh, began his life as an uneducated peasant, and he rose up uh, in the ranks, and by the time uh, he invaded Korea in 1592, he commanded cavalry, archers, foot soldiers, some with muskets and cannon, uh, who he had assembled from all over Japan. And in May of 1592, he landed a force of about 158,000 or so Japanese at Busan, taking advantage of both better weapons uh, and material and logistics, uh, and also superior command structures, Hideyoshi's armies swiftly and completely overwhelmed the ill-prepared and ill-equipped Koreans. In just three weeks, he occupied Seoul. Under the tributary system, the Ming Emperor had a moral obligation to send forces to defend Choson, but the Ming government was plagued by the raids of Mongol tribesmen. And also by internal conflict between powerful eunuchs and Confucian reformers, by fiscal fiscal shortages, in other words uh, monetary shortages, and also by a decline in the number and quality of soldiers. Nevertheless, a full seven months after the Japanese invasion, Ming forces began to arrive. Although they successfully uh, defeated Japanese forces at Pyongyang in February of 1593, Uh, The Ming forces then suffered a stunning defeat just north of Seoul uh, later that month. The Chinese generals became much more cautious, and later that year they negotiated a truce with Kato Kiyomasa, the Japanese commander, who recognized that the Japanese position on both land and sea were weakening. This detente, this sort of ceasefire, lasted until 1597, at which point Hideyoshi renewed the fighting because he was angered by the terms that the Chinese offered. In February of that year, a reduced Japanese force of 141,000 sailed for Korea. This time it was met with better organized, better equipped and better coordinated resistance. Japanese ground forces were blocked by the Ming army and they were forced to retreat southward while Hideyoshi's naval forces were stymied at sea. When Hideyoshi died in 1598, japan withdrew from the peninsula so on the one hand you could say that ming military intervention had somehow saved Joseon from destruction uh, but that's only partially true korea was left devastated so the state was sort of technically intact but two million lives had been lost agricultural production was so disrupted that it took a full century to return to its pre-1592 levels 90% of the farmland in Kyongsang, uh, where the worst of the fighting took place, was reduced to wastelands. And in addition to the famine and disease that followed, Korea was unable to collect taxes or impose corvée with anything like the efficiency uh, that it had before. Its artisan class was depleted both by slaughter, you, know, you lose 2 million people, uh, and also by the large number of Korean craftsmen who were taken back to Japan essentially as POWs, as prisoners. Unsurprisingly, Hideyoshi is not a particularly popular figure uh, in the history of Korea. Uh, I once had a student uh, who had a very famous parent uh, and was therefore interviewed uh, about his interest in Japan. Uh, He made the uh, blunder, I think we'll call it, of saying that he really admired Hideyoshi uh, and immediately had to retract that statement. Uh, It was about to become a serious international incident. Uh, Anyway, oddly, uh, the public narrative, which, for example, takes much of the spectacle of the mound of severed ears brought home to Japan, forgets the involvement of China. Uh, And as even one relatively jingoistic account of this whole debacle reminds us, for Chosun, the war of 1592 to 1598 was a tragedy, more devastating than any other event in Korean history, even the Korean War of of 1950 to 1953. Japanese forces had ravaged and despoiled the entire nation. And today's anti-Japanese sentiment can be traced back to this unprovoked Japanese invasion. The Chinese armies that came to Choson's aid were not much better. For the duration of the war, the administration and the economy were entirely disrupted. The Choson dynasty never fully recovered from these blows. In any case, Korea managed eventually to re-establish uh, relations with Japan, uh, which was at that point under the rule of Tokugawa Ieyasu, and this happened in 1609 with a treaty. The treaty restricted trade to uh, one small area, uh, Tongnai, which is near Busan, uh, where a Japanese office was established behind a palisade fence, and the Japanese were left to administer that enclave. Another sometimes forgotten consequence of Hideyoshi's invasion was that it also shook the balance of power on the Asian continent. By ridding Manchuria of Ming garrisons, the war paved the way for the Manchus to grow rapidly. Uh, in strength in manchuria to conquer the ming and become the masters of china proper of course korea became embroiled in this conflict between the declining ming and the rising Jurchen tribes in manchuria the Choson king tried to maintain neutrality as he strove to rebuild his kingdom but the vast majority of his own officials wanted him to support the ming whose armies had at least ostensibly saved Choson from hideyoshi factional strife there's that phrase again complicated foreign relations in this period. And as usual, there was more energy spent on internal struggles for power than on any real solutions to either domestic or international issues. In 1623, the Westerner faction, uh, remember those that's the folks from Western Seoul, uh, the more established uh, literati, the young mom, led a coup to depose the king. And then they reversed his controversial foreign policy and supported the Ming against the Manchus. This change in Choson policy was taken by the Manchus as a serious affront. Manchus felt it necessary to secure their flank before proceeding with their campaign to conquer China proper. The new king, Sonjo's grandson, Injo, did try to prepare Korea for war. Uh, But when it came and the Manchus invaded in 1627 with a force of 30,000, they overran Korean resistance, still not fully recovered from the devastating wars with Hideyoshi a few decades earlier. The Manchus imposed a peace treaty. Chosun's king stubbornly refused Manchu to pan- did demands, but this backfired, and the Manchus sent an invasion force of over 100,000 men. The Chosun border commander failed to transmit the war beacon signals to the capital on time, which is kind of an oops, it's one of those you had one job to do kind of things, uh, and King Injol received word of the invasion only two days before Manchu troops arrived at Seoul. Surrounded, he was forced to submit to the Qing demand that he sever relations with the Ming dynasty and enroll as a Qing tributary. Uh, Qing here being the Manchu dynasty. The Manchus levied heavy tribute demands on Chosong. Injo was forced to sever ties with Ming China, acknowledge the Manchu suzerainty, the newly proclaimed Qing dynasty, and offer up his two eldest sons as hostages. Now, despite all this, the majority of Korean Yangban still held the Manchus in contempt and remained loyal to the memory of the Ming. On the domestic front, factional disputes temporarily subsided after 1623, as officials were consumed primarily with recovery. Nevertheless, the Yangban remained more concerned with themselves than with anything else. For instance, everyone recognized that military weakness had been caused by evasion of military service, and so attention was turned to requiring military service uh, from slaves. Nevertheless, the Yangban managed to continue, by and large, to evade military service. And sooner or later, factionalism re-emerged anyway, uh, when what seemed at the time a rather minor ritual issue led to a series of major purges and executions beginning in 1659. Uh, the details of this mess are not terribly important to us and remember i said i'm not i'm going to try and stay away from too many you know esoteric details and names and dates and whatever uh, but we what we need to know is that it started in 1659 and this uh, mess continued into the 1720s and then after a brief hiatus started back up again So the hiatus began in 1727 when the new king, uh, Yongjo, uh, moved to put an end to factional strife. Unfortunately, he complicated Korean politics in 1762, when he decided to lock the crown prince in a small rice box in the palace courtyard and left him to starve to death. The crown prince, Sado, died eight days later. In 1749, Yongjo had given Sado, who was uh, 15 at the time, responsibility as prince regent to take over many of the king's tasks. But the crown prince's fear of his father's ridicule apparently pushed him over the edge of sanity, and he released his pent-up frustrations in paroxysms of rage in which he murdered palace ladies who offended him, uh, and he was eventually killed after he was overheard praying for his father's death. So this filicide, the killing of one's son, uh, this, in this case, the crown prince, split the government into those who agreed with the decision uh, and those who sympathized with the deceased crown prince. And this laid the groundwork for yet another round of purges. In 1776, the son of Sado, the uh, crown prince who had gone crazy and gotten himself killed, came to the throne. This is King Chongjo. Changzhou wanted to be a model king like the ancient Chinese sage kings, but he was hampered as usual by his officials and the internal divisions between uh, between them. Still, he ordered the importation of Chinese classical texts for a new royal library. He turned the library staff into his own private cabinet uh, to advise him on state affairs. Uh, But on the other hand, he banned the free importation of books from China because he saw many of them as subversive including popular novels and treatises on Christian theology. For his trouble, uh, he suffered through seven assassination attempts. Plotters tried to have him assassinated seven times, uh, but they didn't quite manage to do it. Uh, nevertheless, that sort of thing is not a real excellent recipe for political stability. So. The uh, government at the time adopted impartiality policies to weaken factionalism, to, they overhauled the tax system to increase state revenues, uh, they promoted improved learning and military preparedness, um, and yet their efforts were hampered by all sorts of obs- obstacles. Uh, assassination attempts were perhaps less problematic than the overall impoverishment and stability, instability of society and the strife between the Yangban factions. But nevertheless, that was definitely a problem. But despite this turmoil, and the continued intransigence of the Yangban, the reigns of Yongzhou and his grandson Chongzhou, who ruled in the last quarter of the 18th century, are generally considered to have at least slowed the disintegration of a fundamentally broken system. Perhaps the most significant political change in the 19th century was the institution of a system of regency, and the corresponding movement of sectionalism from the yangban to the royal family when kojong was coronated at age 12 in 1864 his father became the taewonggong or regent and ruled in his son's stead Uh, and this is what i mean by uh, the beginning of sectionalism or factionalism within the royal family because now you have two rulers you have one who has power the father the daewangun and you have one who has authority the king but the uh and this is something that uh if you're familiar with uh sort of older japanese history in particular uh you will see this pa- a very similar sort of pattern for example but this split between uh power and authority is the root of some new troubles And the rivalry between the regent and the Queen's clan, in particular, was one of the defining features of political life for the rest of the 19th century. The Taewonggung strong-armed a number of reforms in his decade in power. This included measures to fight bureaucratic uh, corruption, uh, administrative and tax reforms, etc. His attempts to weaken the power of high-ranking officials did not earn the regent many friends in that class. In other words, he was fighting against the uh, class interests and the hereditary interests of some of these high-ranking officials, these Yangbang. His other reforms had similarly mixed results and reception before the queen's faction forced him from power in 1873. Uh, We're not going to talk about it today, but this this time uh, uh, in which the Taewonggung is uh, at the helm is coming uh, at the same time that uh, China is trying to recover from the opium wars, uh, Japan is dealing with its first uh, sort of influx of uh, Western uh, ideas and institutions uh, as the new Meiji state. So it's a very sort of momentous period. The third quarter of the uh, 19th century uh, it is a very momentous period in East Asian history more generally. So the picture that I've painted thus far, uh, when you look at the politics and the uh, military, uh, is basically bleak. Um, It's not the whole picture, though. And I think if we look at the economy a little bit, you can see some more positive trends. For example, in the 18th century, there were increasing signs of economic growth, social change, and a new cultural openness. In 1654, so we're jumping back to the 17th century, um, cash was reinstituted for the first time in about 100 years, but the economy remained predominantly agrarian, and so taxes were paid in kind, uh, in other words, sort of like a barter system, or with physical labor, corvée. Most artisans were slaves to the Yangban and the royal house. Increases in agricultural productivity allowed farmers to abandon the fallow system and farm larger scale plots. Land reclamation projects and the conversion of dry fields to wet irrigated ones, in other words, rice paddies, expanded arable acreage, in other words, farmable land. A government ministry was instituted to maintain irrigation facilities across the Chosun Peninsula, and the reservoir system was expanded. By the end of the century, there were nearly 6,000 reservoirs across the peninsula supporting Korean agriculture. In this context, farmers diversified they added cash crops such as ginseng tobacco and cotton also imported crops uh, some of which were quite important many of them of new world in other words uh, north and south american origins Uh, and these included sweet potatoes uh, also white potatoes tomatoes squash red peppers Uh, and here we have a sort of ironic side note to the sad history of hideyoshi's invasions It's actually the Japanese armies who introduced to Korea the key new ingredient that defines one of Korea's most internationally famous and representative foods, i.e. kimchi. And you've probably already guessed that that ingredient is the hot pepper, which is a new world crop first brought to Japan by Portuguese missionaries in the 16th century. In any case, despite increased agricultural productivity, even as late as 1900, average production of rice per acre in Korea was about 15 bushels. This is the same as what it was in China in 1400, 500 years earlier. Nevertheless, uh, there were, as I've said, some advances in agriculture. And as a result, um, as well as this sort of natural baby boom uh, that you see in in populations uh, that have been devastated by decades of war, uh, the Korean population grew to about 14 million. Uh, by 1810 and that represented a 40 percent increase over 1650. Commerce also changed greatly during this period. At the beginning of the 18th century, commerce in the capital was restricted to officially sanctioned monopoly merchants. In the countryside, it was restricted to itinerant peddlers and fifth-day markets. Commercial towns and permanent shops were rare, However, in the 1730s, unlicensed private merchants began to compete with the licensed merchants in the capital. The growth of internal commerce both encouraged and was facilitated by improved transportation infrastructure. New roads and sea lanes improved the shipping of goods around the peninsula, which also served to increase cultural and social integration. The movement of people and goods and ideas around Cholson was also encouraged by increasing use of coinage in place of barter. Of course, the transition to a monetary economy was neither complete nor without its own new set of troubles. Wealthy yangban were known to hoard hard currency, for example, uh, and they were essentially speculating on uh, the market, which caused inflation. On the other hand, yangban in many cases suffered in the new economy, along with everyone else. In a pattern that we will see with uh, the samurai class in Japan of the same time, a large number of yangban fell on hard times. Instead, wealthy merchants and farmers were, be, some were able to purchase title and privilege that had previously been uh, the property, essentially, of the yangban Economic change drove social change, as it does. As a great American political philosopher once said, perhaps unintentionally echoing Marx, it's the economy stupid. Commerce was, as it has often been in history, intimately related to government military expenditure. After the Japanese invasions, the Chosun government extended military service to private slaves for the first time. Military service was mandatory for all adult males, except for merchants, slaves, and men in official schools. It was harder for Yangban to avoid service altogether, but they were still allowed to serve in special guard units set aside for them. The court imposed an extra land tax in grain, which it used to purchase the special goods it needed for national defense. The new tax was adopted gradually, but by 1708, the new system covered the whole country and more than doubled the tax burden on landowners. The law stimulated increased commercial activity, particularly among private unlicensed merchants. Let's talk about uh, slavery one more time, because in the early Chilson period, both private and government slavery were pervasive, as I hinted at the outset. State slaves alone in the late 15th century numbered somewhere around 350,000. Uh, and government efforts to limit private slaveholding never really accomplished very much. Still, as the economy became more commercialized in the 18th century, slavery declined. Between 1750 and 1790, so four decades, there was a sharp reduction in the slave population from about 30% to less than 10%. So that's where the real change seems to have happened. The number of official slaves, at least, dropped from 350,000 in in 1590, as I said, to about 60,000 in 1801. Uh, And this is the year in which the remaining slaves of the Cholson government were emancipated. Private slavery though was not abandoned uh, for basically another century until 1894. I wanna say a few things about the culture of the period and then end up with gender. Literary activity burgeoned in the 17th and 18th centuries. Many of these stories deal with women. Some portray women defending their womanly virtues, but suffering is a pretty common theme. The most popular of all tales was both a didactic tale of the triumph of womanly virtue over evil and a romantic tale about the son of a young official who fell in love with the daughter of a courtesan who did not want to continue in her mother's occupation. The story mixes dream sequences, erotic scenes, unexpected danger, and Buddhist awareness of karma, life after death, and resignation to fate. You also have uh, from this period the brilliant memoirs of a court lady, uh, the one who was actually married to the mad prince, uh, and this is an, uh, also considered to be an outstanding work of the period. There were a lot of popular works that had Buddhist messages, uh, political messages, etc oral literature and songs also flourished, many of which mocked the Yangban. So you can tell who's, who's doing the singing and who's doing the listening there. Uh, it's not the elites. Intellectually, for much of the Joseon period, Confucianism was quite rigid. This changed somewhat in the 18th century, as scholarly circles became more open to new ideas. But the net change was small because of conservative blowback among Yangban and at court, uh, and also of as usual, continued factionalism. In 1786, uh, a southerner named Pak Chegab proposed that the king invite Christian missionaries who were at the time stationed in China to come to Korea to teach Western astronomy and math. This so-called Northern learning movement represented a liberalization of intellectual thought, but it had a very limited effect on government policy. Anti Manchu prejudice and the Confucian bias against merchants were too deeply entrenched. Christianity and Western scientific knowledge had mixed reception. Cholson's scholarly class tended to lump Christian theology and Western science together into a single term, which they referred to as Western learning. This doesn't mean, however, that they were accepted or rejected uniformly, right? All the things that went into that category. Rather, as is always the case, Koreans selectively adopted and adapted ideas and knowledge, knowledge they saw as advantageous. Uh, And because it was elites that were serving as the gatekeepers, advantageous generally meant in the class interests of the royals and yangban, etc., the Korean elites. Interest in farm management and agricultural technology encouraged many publications on agriculture, some of which incorporated new knowledge from the West, filtered or imported through China. So, for example, a Cholson emissary to Ming, China, brought back a musket, telescope, alarm clock, and books on astronomy and Western culture that had been written by the Jesuit missionary Matteo Ricci. Many of the Italian Jesuits' works on Catholic theology and Western math, astronomy, and geography, which were translated into literary Chinese, were brought into Korea in the 17th century. Koreans were won over to Western astronomical ideas and adopted the Western calendar in 1653 because it was useful, right? So knowledge was accepted when it was useful, Uh, even though, on the other hand, many of the basic principles of Western science and philosophy were rejected by establishment Confucian scholars. So uh, a few words about gender in the Chosun dynasty. Korea's original family system was quite different from China's so making Koreans conform to the strictures in the Chinese classics required much more radical change in Korea than it ever had in China. In pre-Choson times, the Korean family was neither patriarchal nor patrilineal. Sons-in-law usually lived with their wives' families for several years before setting up their own homes. Oldest daughters often stayed permanently in their parents' home, and continuing a family practice, excuse me, continuing a family lineage through a daughter was an accepted practice. Women inherited equal shares of their parents' property, and could take that property into marriage and maintain control of it. If they had no children to inherit the property, it returned to their family of birth, to their natal family. Both men and women remarried if they were widowed. Men could have several wives who were treated equally. Ancestor worship was not common, and funerals were largely Buddhist affairs. Rather than bury the dead in coffins, families followed the Buddhist practice of cremation. Mourning, too, followed Buddhist customs, and was generally limited to 100 days. Some reforms to all this were accepted relatively quickly. By the 18th century, Confucian ancestor worship had completely replaced Buddhist ceremonies for the deceased, and the Confucian pattern of patriarchal domination of the family reached its zenith. It took about 300 years before Buddhist burial practices and beliefs were replaced at the lowest levels of society though, and this tells you about the sort of top-down nature of the Confucian revolution. The compilation of Confucian genealogies also had great impact on Cholson society. At the beginnings of the dynasty, women were listed in the family genealogy, along with their brothers, in the order of birth. However, by the 18th century, women were all listed after their brothers, And when they married their names were removed from the family register. Instead they were listed in their husband's register. How were women's lives affected then by these changes in law and ideology? The women in Yangban families were affected most because their behavior impinged on the social standing of the family, putting them under more pressure to conform to such ideals as avoiding contact with men who were not relatives, Uh, Certainly, though, women could still exert considerable power in the private sphere of the family. Religiously, women, as well as many men, continued to believe in Buddhist ideas, despite Confucian condemnation. Uh, These included particularly ideas about transmigration, karma, uh, Buddhist hells and punishments, um, and especially when facing illness or impending death, uh, people turned to Buddhism women continued to engage in religious practices, usually frowned on by men, Uh, that include praying to mountains, trees, and household gods. Uh, They also hired shamans or shamans and attended religious festivals. So at the end here, I wanna take a step back and do a little bit of a summary, right? So we need to ask the question, what changed over the roughly 200 years, 1600 to 1800? In 1800, Korea was still unified under kings of the same dynasty who competed for power with the entrenched Yangban elite, and it remained rare for Yangban aristocrats to have any military skills or experience. On the other hand, life in Korea had changed dramatically. Although Korean food, houses, and clothing remained distinct, and distinctly Korean in that sense, uh, many other features of Korean life were strongly affected by the Confucianization campaigns, which made them more quote-unquote, Chinese. It sinicized them. The economy had evolved from one rooted in control over land and people, with very little use for money, to ones where coins circulated widely, trade was more prevalent, and slavery had declined substantially. The development of a new script for writing Korean, i.e. the Hangul script, made it possible to develop literature in vernacular Korean, uh, and that literature flourished. So, that's all for uh this sort of brief overview of pre-1800 uh Joseon, Korea uh we dealt we kind of got into the 19th century uh in a, in a couple of places uh but we're going to pick up in that 19th century the next time we come back to Korea